All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. Um, I will not ask you about your weekend. No, no, we, we, I know we've been trying not to talk I about know. the weekend. Although, Although gonna I'm going to talk about mine later because that's a, a funny story. I know, it's funny. I don't but, even know what it is, but I know that it's funny. Nah, it's not that. Now we've oversold it, and people are like, ah, it's not really that funny. Okay. So we are going to talk about today. Do you want me to say what we're going to talk about? Uh, sure. Okay, so we're going to talk about um, those who don't live in the New York City area. Maybe don't know that last week there was a biblical flood in New York City. That yeah, although what I'm going to talk about, I think, ultimately is about... Le- no, 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 but it's about leadership principles more broadly, so okay. it really applies to any mayor anywhere. Okay, so quickly, but we're going to get right back to that. Yeah. We're talking about Lena Khan um, and her... Is it a crusade against Amazon? We'll see. Hmm. The FTC? Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, whose trial starts tomorrow. This. Well, today, for, if you're listening, you know, when, when this comes out, yeah, October 3rd. Okay. And um, we're going to talk about a New Yorker article about his parents and a couple other things related to that. We're going to talk about your weekend trip to Maryland. Ooh, yep. boy, that sounds good. Yeah. Hanover, Maryland. <laughs> um, and we're going to get your recommendations. Yep. So that's what we have on tap today. And why don't we just get going? You started to answer, the, as you always on do. On the flooding, yeah. You always start to answer the question before. I know. That it's, I, and I apologize. I trained you all these years, Bradley. We have gotten, um, we've gotten listener feedback sort of asking me politely to not do that. But uh, <laughs> I, and I try, but I'm, I'm bad at it. So... Um, we had biblical, like Hugo said, flooding uh, in New York. The word York biblical is fun to say, isn't it? On Thursday. Biblical. I think it was the highest day of recorded rain in New York history or maybe in a century. So, something something meaningful in okay. statistics. Were you here for it? You- I, I, I was. And uh, in fact, no, it was Friday, right? And what was good about it was because it was a Friday, I was so drenched that after my last in-person meeting, I just worked from home the rest of the day. Okay. And as a result, I was like, I don't care how wet I am because I'm just going to go home and take a shower anyway. So, like, it was one of those just resigned to being drenched. Like, I had an umbrella and it made no difference whatsoever. Right. Um, but but here's that Eric Adams, mayor of New York City, has gotten a lot of criticism because he didn't really take the lead in terms of guiding New Yorkers through the storm. I think New Yorkers are used to having a mayor, especially when you had Mike and Rudy and Koch, uh, who were more active than, say, de Blasio or, or Dinkins were. Um Really, whenever there's a a, a a natural disaster or a crisis of some kind, you know, really kind of what's publicly available and updating the public and giving instructions and giving people information on a constant basis, um, and Adams chose not to do that. Apparently, he had a big birthday party the night before. He was out late. Um, he's known for staying out till 3, 4 in the morning every night. Uh, he likes to say, if you're going to hang out with the boys at night, you got to get up with the men in the morning. Maybe he didn't get up with the men in the morning on Friday. I don't know. Uh, the Emergency Management Commissioner, Zach Iskell, said he did two interviews the day before. Again, seems to be missing the point. Um, and, and so, look, this is not that hard, right? All you have to I mean, even to Ron DeSantis kind of kicked ass on this, right, during the all, hurricane? It's so everything? fucking e- It's the greatest gift a politician can have because all you have to do is just be a, the one thing that politicians are good at and like doing, talking to the press. All you have to do, and, and unlike most of the time where they're giving you a hard time, they actually understand in a true crisis that the story is the crisis, and they ask you about that, right? They're not giving you a hard time about other shit. So it's, it's sort of the easiest press conferences you ever have. You just have to be available, right? You go to the emergency management center, go to the site of whatever's going on, or even city hall, but, but constantly provide updates. And all you have to do literally if you're the mayor is say, okay— if you read your talking points of what's going on overall, and then you introduce the emergency management commissioner, the police commissioner, the parks commissioner, whoever is relevant in that situation, that's it. And then questions that you want to answer, you answer. Questions you don't want to answer, you let them answer. It is as easy as it gets, and it's sort of city governance 101. 
and Adams didn't do it. Um, and I'll tell you, it, it, he was trying to play it off as like, well, we were doing the actual work, so that's all that really matters. And I think where he's missing um, is leadership in large part, and I, I saw this firsthand during 9-11, is about being there. Um, Rudy, for example, highly praised for his leadership during 9-11, and, and I would agree with that. But you know, there wasn't that much actual operations or governing to do. There were some, but the reality is the really hard work was the aftermath in terms of cleaning up this ground zero and rebuilding and all that. He was long gone for all of that. He was just there, right? He was available. He was empathetic to the to the victims, to the city as a whole, country, and wherever he just spent, he was 24-7. And look, he loved it too because he got all his attention and he got knighted and all these incredible things happened to him. But he did a really good job with it. And it's funny, when I was, I was Schumer's communications director at the time, and I remember having this feeling of real anxiety slash repulsion because Chuck was very focused on getting a lot of attention around 9-11. And part of me was like, this is disgusting, right? That this man is trying to use this for his own personal gain. And I realized pretty quickly he was right. Um, not that his motives were pure, that they weren't. Chuck wants attention for Chuck at all times. But him being at sort of the armory where the victim's families were or visiting the hospital where people were giving blood or whatever the event was, a church service, memorials for the victims, it helped people. People wanted to see their leaders. It made them feel better. Um, Chuck, intuitively to his credit, understood that. Rudy understood that. I don't uh, think I've ever been comforted by seeing Chuck Schumer. I just want you to say it. Yeah, yeah. May, maybe not. But, but, but I, I really did see it firsthand, and I really did go into it sort of like, really wary and, and queasy about it. Um, and so people do need that. And maybe the information you're telling them is already available on the internet or whatever. Like, sure, you get these text alerts, you know. But but Adam seems to be missing the fundamental point. And here's what I don't get. He's not lazy and his team isn't dumb. So I don't know what the fuck happened. Like, I don't know why he was MIA and absent. And I don't know if there's something, and it's hard to know with him because there always feels like there's things about his personal life that you don't know that he's hiding. I don't think anyone would disagree with that, even his own team. And so as a result, something happened, and I don't know what it was. Uh, I suspect they won't make this mistake again, but it was a dramatic absence of leadership. So uh, I know you uh, I know you wanted to focus on the Adams aspect of this, but as a New Yorker experiencing the flood, was it personally worrisome to you as a like whoa the city's not really made for this no or? no because here's the thing like yeah i am worried from a big picture trend standpoint that climate change and we are a city of, of manhattan's island that island's island the bronx is connected to the rest of mainland america but brooklyn and queens and long island is another island right so we're a city of islands basically um and so i do obviously worry about you know, rising sea levels and storm surges and all of that. I think that's a very valid concern from a macro standpoint. And I think they're doing things like trying to build a wall at East River Park to, to deal with surges and things like that. But no, look, I mean, shit happens all of the time. That That's just what city government's about. And you're not going to get it perfect. And the fact that the MTA had to shut down service to, to Brooklyn, for example, like, okay, I get it. You know, biblical amounts of rain are coming through the system you don't build the system for the once in a century black swan occurrence. You build it for the every day. And so you deal with it. So the I don't really know that there was a huge failure of action or anything that sort of made me nervous for the city. I think there was a huge failure of leadership. And if Adams had just done what every other mayor, even de Blasio, as lazy as he was, managed to do this most of the time, 
if he just did his basic job, I don't think anybody would be questioning anything. I will say there were some difficult images. Like, did you see the one, I don't know what subway station it was, where the water was coming through the middle of the wall? You know, there was a lot yeah. where it's like pouring down the stairs. Yeah, like, but look, it's a hundred and something year old system, you're man. Like, what? How could stuff come? I mean, you've had floods in where you've lived, right? Stuff we we had one on Friday. Middle of the wall. We had one coming down from it comes the from ceiling. The yeah, top. right. But we, we did have one in my apartment on Friday. Oh, you did? Um, yeah. And in your uh, apartment? Yeah. Is it okay? Um, it's okay. It's fine. Um, but look, the MTA has been around for, I don't know, 130, 140 years, 150 years at this point. So, and whenever they try to fix the system, it costs. 3x what they think it's going to and takes 5x longer. I mean, how many billions they spend just to open up one or two new Second Avenue subway lines, uh, not line stations. Um, so the the infrastructure there doesn't surprise me because there is a limited amount of money for a tremendous amount of needs. Um, and so if you had to say, or like for example, right now, the big problem would be fair beating. And then as a result, crime on the platforms or just like, you know, homelessness, but to a point of just uh, people who are naked or doing shooting up or things that are really problematic i mean i don't know if, if you've been at the, on the you've been, i assume you brought you're at the union State square station a lot right yeah, sure my last few times there including when i left you after that back concert it smelled like shit and i don't mean like just smelled bad i mean it smelled like human feces yeah um and that was on the nr platform that was on the six so overall if you're saying to me what i'd rather than worry about a once in a century flood or the constant smell of human feces, I'd go for the feces. Um, if anybody's listening to this and they know the person who's in charge of the Bronx River Parkway, you know that part that always floods? Do you mm -hmm. see those pictures, the Bronx, you know, no. totally submerged cars? There's like one part of it that seems like every time there's a rainstorm, it literally, like this major road in New York City becomes completely impassable. And you're like, what? How do they not just fix, like, make some engineering thing? Like, it's it's yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, what, yes, although again, now yeah, I sound like I'm sort of defending the bureaucracy. I know but you are. You are. The, the I, question I put is, you in charge of the bureaucracy. What would it cost to fix it, and what's the benefit relative right. to what the benefit of something? Couple the money of submerged on cars else. once a year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, okay, let's talk. But about again, had the mayor been more proactive, people would have known not to driven on the Bronx River Parkway. Yeah, and I'm never driving on it again if I can avoid it, even if it's sunny out. You're just, you're out completely. <laughs> like Waze or whatever's telling you hit the Bronx River Park. You're like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm taking, taking the hutch. I'm yeah. taking streets. I'm taking 149th at Grand Concourse. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, I'll probably be on it again. You're right. I'm sorry. That's hyperbole. Um, should we switch? Hard, yeah. Hard, hard, pivot, hard, pivot. hard pivot time yeah. to Lena Khan, our friend Lena Khan. Yeah. Been uh, here at the bookstore for, for a really cool Q&A with you. Yeah. And is now taking on um, Amazon. Almost. Yeah. Um, so... What's she doing here? What's, what's uh, happening? I, I, you know? I really like, yeah, and, and I've been very publicly supportive of what she's doing here specifically. Um, and I, I think it's very good, which is what she is saying is Amazon's dominance in the online retail marketplace is so severe and so overwhelming that no one can compete, number one. Number two, if you are a vendor on the Amazon platform, you effectively have to pay them kickbacks. You have to buy advertising and so give them exactly other rebates. This is exactly what Apple does, right? Um, yeah, and I, th I think Apple should be should be investigated too. Right. Um, uh, but you have to pay them all kinds of kickbacks to not have them put you on page 37 instead of page one or two of the search results. And they control a tremendous amount of the online marketplace shopping. Uh, not all of it, but a, but a significant percentage. And where my argument has, has been is less even around the legal merits of the case. Like I saw a piece in the Times over the weekend that Farhad Manju, who's a tech columnist, wrote kind of making the case for argument, making the case for Amazon and saying, you know, really their market share is not as big as we think. 
Maybe he's right. Uh, that's for the court. To Did that surprise out, right? you? Read that in the New York Times. A, a little bit, because it seemed like he was sort of like reciting the talking points. So I'm not sure, but you know, I, he seems like a, a guy with integrity. So I'm going to assume he's he believes what he says. Um, so fine. Um, but the point is, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the court case or not. I don't know if the FTC has a slam dunk case or, or not. But here's what I do know: as an early stage tech investor. Uh, given the market dominance of Amazon, Apple, Google, Meta, Microsoft, it is impossible to invest in any early stage companies that could attempt to compete with them, right? Because when you're investing in a new company, you have to ask yourself two questions, especially if you're in, in their space. One, would it be, is, is the incumbent, or say Amazon in this case, more likely to build this thing themselves or to buy X company that we're thinking about? And two, why wouldn't and couldn't Amazon just squash them, right? And, and the answer on the first one is sometimes build, sometimes buy, but the answer is always yes on the second one, which is they have too much market power not to be able to do that because when you're an early stage startup, you know, you raise a couple of million dollars and you're trying to do everything with a couple of million dollars and you can't compete against a company like Amazon. And here's the real problem. It's not even that I dislike Amazon, right? Like, I'm sitting here in the independent bookstore that I own and lose tons of money on, and I'll admit that I buy, I count the other day, I've bought well over 100 books on Kindle this year. I happen to like reading both in hardcover and on, on my iPad. And so I use Amazon all the time. I, I don't have a problem with Amazon in terms of, of a service provider, um, but I know this. Right now, they are an incredibly innovative, transformative company uh, their cloud business is incredible. They're doing all kinds of really cool things. This is true. Plus my wife works there. Plus Sarah works there. <laughs> right. But um, they are subject to the laws of gravity just like everyone else. And what goes up comes down, which means eventually the great founder, in this case Bezos, moves on. Andy Jassy seems like a worthy successor. But eventually, you know, it starts to sort of erode. You get a more of a CUIA culture, more bureaucratic, more kind of internally political and you get stagnation. And all of a sudden, the innovations are less and less because people are more worried about protecting their turf than they are about sort of groundbreaking new ideas. Um, and then eventually, this, the, the, the company really suffers, right? Like when we were kids, you know, IBM, General Electric, where these just like, they were going to dominate the world forever, right? Geniuses, so smart. You know, Jack Welch was the biggest genius in the world. General Electric's like an afterthought now. And that's going to happen to Amazon eventually too. When that happens, and this is what I am mostly concerned with, are there people ready to step up and take their place in, in the market? That only happens if early stage tech startups are funded and are able to go ahead and try to compete. Most will fail, but as always, a few will manage to find ways to succeed. If no one like me can invest in that early stage alternative because Amazon's market power is so dominant that there's just no point whatsoever, then those companies aren't going to be funded. They're not going to be created. And then when Amazon eventually does stagnate, which they will eventually, and there's no one to take their place, you have a huge hole in the economy. And so I think the FTC's job is twofold. Part of it is to specifically look for instances of, you know, uncompetitive market behavior. And part of it is, you know, along with the National Economic Council and the Treasury and the SEC and everyone else, to think about the, the state of the U.S. economy, not just today, but in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and when you look down the road a little bit, absent doing something about the sort of overly monopolistic power that companies like Amazon have, the economy's going to have a real problem. And so I really applaud what, what Lena Khan and the FTC is doing here. And what about the politics of it? So I, I, like, uh, looking at just like the headlines, which is probably the most that any American really pays attention to this, mm -hmm. other than you know people like you or maybe me, um, what, 
is, is this does this is this like Biden sort of appealing to the the sort of like lefties? Like what's he what's I, happening I, here? You know, you know, I I, th I think it's one of those things where it's it's a political somewhere between a winner and a non-entity for Biden, right? It's a winner in that people on the left probably are excited about it, but also keep in mind the far right they hate Biden. It's not not like they're going to now vote for him. But they also don't like giant corporations and anti-competitive behavior too. So you're not going to really get like the the cre Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and all those lunatics screaming about this because they actually kind of agree, right? And it looked in the same way that like Josh Hawley was on the the, the picket line for GM. Um, so you have some unity there. And then I think the average person, one, you know, FTC antitrust so boring that it just your eyes glass over. And two, I think we all have this sort of like acceptance of Amazon that like they are a useful service. We, we, we all take advantage of it, but I don't love Amazon. I just use Amazon. Right. And if I don't have any particular loyalty to them and so I, my, th my guess is that's true of most people, the company that probably has more actual loyalty is Apple. Um, because people, you know, your, your phone is such an extension now of, of yourself, of your identity that people do connect to it a lot more than they do, you know, a particular marketplace like Amazon. But even Apple, I think, is is losing that luster. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that probably there's more love out there in the middle of America for Amazon than you might be say, thinking, um, because the I think people live on it and really like organize their lives around you know the endless like stream of packages coming into their home and the incredible sort of convenience of that. But you know, like I said, I'm biased. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, what? What is the Amazon play here then? Um, you know, obviously, um, the uh, a handicap of the government in a case like this is you're talking about a multi-year. This is going to be. It's not going to be decided tomorrow, next nope. year, next, next, even like two this or three years. This is a very time, right? long, complicated case. Lena Khan will be on to her next job before this is resolved. Maybe uh, um, well, if Biden gets reelected, she, you know, if 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 Biden serves a second term, it will get resolved somewhere, yay or nay, in that period of time. So it's possible she'll be around for it. Right. I mean, it's amazing how long the Microsoft Activision thing took. You know, it went on for is, years, yeah. I mean, it's still going oh, on. Oh, the Activision, yeah. But even the Microsoft oh, yeah, that's, antitrust in the late 90s went right. on for a long time. Right. So let's um, let's just talk about it from the Amazon perspective. If if you were advising them, what do they just run out the clock? Throw no, the no, there's, there's, like, there's two, you know, there's a legal strategy and there's a political strategy. The legal strategy, I'm sure they have it up and down covered already, which is, you know, they're going to argue, as you saw in that, that Times piece, or actually a very small part of the overall marketplace. Most people do their shopping still in physical stores, not digital. And then within digital, yes, there's us, but there's Walmart and there's Target and there's all these other marketplaces too. And, you know, we may be the most famous, but we're just being punished for our success. And we are not actually A, uh, as big as you think, and B, any different than any other online marketplaces um, that you haven't taken action against. So that's the legal argument and it may succeed. I don't know. The political argument is tricky, right? Because if you just, if this were a scorched earth, do or die situation, you would say, get the public up in arms by saying, you know what, if the FTC succeeds here, you're no longer gonna get your packages or it's gonna take twice as long or it's gonna cost twice as much or kind of like what we would do with Uber, right? Like basically, because with Uber, it was existential. Either we would survive in that marketplace or we wouldn't. Amazon could do that. And you're right, maybe through that, they could rally people in the middle of the country, people in the suburbs, things like that. At the same time, at a cost to the business, right? Because people, again, aren't paying that close attention. And so if you're telling them, oh, everything's going to cost double, you don't know if what they're hearing is, I better step up and try to save Amazon or, oh, Amazon's a lot more expensive now. I should go somewhere else. And so I, my guess is that the business risk to the 
is too great for the political strategy, and I also don't think the court is that likely to be that swayed by the political strategy. So I think now that it's it's at the legal phase, it's probably mainly just a legal strategy, and the calm strategy is what the what you saw with the Times. It's just the talking points, as many ways as they can get them out there. Um, hard pivot time. Sure, yeah. Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I by the way, we should announce. Uh, you know what's coming on this podcast, which I'm so excited about. Am I ruining the surprise? You like? You're no, not, no. You're I know what you're going to say. Michael Lewis. Yeah. So Michael Lewis's new book, which is about Sam Bankman Fried, comes I watched out him October third last night. Um, I did not see that, um, but um, he's coming on Firewall. Talk about it. So I'm so psyched. I'm like a huge Michael Lewis fan, and uh, thank you to our friend Mark Botnick for making it happen. Amazing. Um, that's exciting. Let's talk about, and we'll obviously have lots of questions for him about Sam Bankman Fried, but let's talk about this article in the New Yorker last week that I sent you by Sheila Kohakar. Mm-hmm which was um, she got to spend some time yep. at their home in Palo Alto yep. um, where Sam was until he was um, taken off to the Brooklyn House of Detention, yep. which must be lovely. Um, yeah, I've heard it's wonderful. <laughs> so um, my question to you is um, his parents, I mean, they're highly respected people. They're both professors at Stanford. They also, even given that um, prestigious affiliation, seem like, genuinely decent people who are respected in the community and in mm-hmm. their professions. And yet they not only raised this kid who pulled off this, I mean, I guess we'll see if it's a crime, but, um, gotcha. but, but not only did that, but they were involved in it. You know, they, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, his dad did legal work for the company. They were down there in the Bahamas and staying at these crazy penthouse apartments that, you know, right. like so, it, yeah. it, it, the whole thing looks I mean, just terrible. What, it does. Uh, like, like you can't even imagine what they just do. Do parents, do their brains just turn off? Well, when so it comes I, I think to there's, there's, like, what, there's what? two levels of questions here. So look, let's deal with the substantive one quickly. Two organizing the, it nicely. Turn the, Go ahead. The West, that's what the host does. <laughs> um, and then turn to the more interesting one, which is what you raised, which is sort of the emotional piece, right? Right. So uh, on the logical, there's two ways to look at it. One would be literally his mom is a professor of legal ethics, right? right? right. How could she not know that what his her son was doing, what their company was doing, was problematic. On the other hand, you know, having gone to law school, can I, can I interrupt you for yeah. one second there? Right there, like you know, so so the business I guess was originally in Hong Kong, I think, and then they moved to the Bahamas. So at her advice, right? So your legal well, ethics, and you're like, hey, moment. here's where we run the business outside the United States. Like so, so can... I, I I guess the way they would justify it to themselves, or maybe the way they even genuinely felt about it in the meeting is. Crypto is this incredibly new thing, and in a way, um, it you know if you say Bahamas is to the U.S. as Hong Kong is to China, sort of um, big nationalistic governments are not fans of crypto because it is a threat, right? China banned crypto completely. The SEC is effectively, you know, in its own way, trying to move towards the same outcome here. Whereas if you're a small country, um, crypto may actually be phenomenally good for you. It could it could be a lifeline? It could be a way to stabilize your currency, and so. Um, if you want to get in the benefit of the doubt, so just it's like that, money laundering is really good for a lot of those. Okay, but too. but I think in this case, if you believed in the underlying, the underlying precept of crypto is that you can't trust federal governments and banks to look out for regular people, right? Um, I saw the movie Dumb Money this weekend. It's gonna be one of my recommendations, and it's about the whole GameStop uh, stock uh, trial. And um, 
the point of the movie was effectively the market is rigged in favor of the institutional investors, the hedge funds, people like that, um, and not in favor of your average retail investor. And the movie was about sort of the heroics and their view uh, of one guy who was able to sort of take down or at least challenge the hedge fund. Um, so from that perspective, if you believe the markets are rigged, you know it, it's not a coincidence that the Bitcoin white paper came out in 2009, right after the financial crisis and right after it was clear that all of the people who caused it were not going to be punished and they were going to get away scot-free. Almost no one did jail time. And that frustration, even though it's believed that the paper originated in Japan, was something felt by the entire global system. And I think as a result, people who are already very skeptical of the integrity of central governments and central banks said, you know what, we're opting out, we want something else. So if you're doing that, the notion that you would therefore incorporate in a country that is not the place where you think everything's great in the first place, it isn't crazy. Well, and I, I, I totally agree that it's not crazy. But on the other hand, if you are a professor of legal ethics, yes, so let's let's get at a major university in the United States, your attitude can't be like, well, fuck the government, right? I mean, <laughs> well, there's two things, right? So the, the first one is is the substantive, and I guess my question is this: there's there's two ways to look at it. One would be, yeah, they they both should have known better, did know better, and they chose either a love for their son or personal greed or both um, to violate what they knew to be true. That's possible. The other possibility uh, is they don't know what they don't know, right? I mean, I saw this like when I went to law school, the professors at the University of Chicago were geniuses, right? Fucking Barack Obama was one of the professors there. But what made Obama different than everyone else was he actually also existed in the real world. He was a state senator at the time. My professors there were wonderful, but they live in the world of law journals and, and academic conferences. I mean, we see this with mobile voting, right? We have these, these people, these academics at these different schools, whether it's MIT or Michigan or South Carolina, that oppose us. And these are people who live in the ivory tower. They've never worked in the real world of government. They've never worked in the real world of politics. They've never run a business. They've never made payroll. Um, they live in a completely theoretical world and have no ability to actually do a real cost benefit analysis of the cost of continuing the status quo versus the risk of changing it. Um, so if you said to me, Sam Bankman Freed's parents are really impressive people, but we tend to sort of overestimate um, academics at really top schools and kind of give them honestly way too much credit. There are multiple types of intelligence. They have one type. These are people who have absolutely tremendous sort of, you know, conventional IQ type intelligence. Um, but there's mechanical intelligence. There's emotional intelligence. There's all kinds of different intelligences of which they may not have any. Um, but as a society, like we widely bullshit detector. Yeah, like, we yeah. widely overvalue it, and right. they didn't know what they didn't know. They right. thought that because they were professors at Stanford, they were the hot shit and the smartest people in the world, and they weren't. You'd mentioned wanting to sort of tie this. Yeah, so here's the real question: so is the emotional right, which right. is um, they love their kid, uh, they believe in him, they want to support him. He is a kid. If you read the article, they grew up, you know, with some emotional challenges, right? Um, seems like maybe he's a little on the spectrum, clearly has ADHD, and I'm sure they worry about him a lot. And here he was thriving, right, as a human being. And I think they were probably incredibly relieved and incredibly excited. And the most important thing in the world to them was probably to see their son continue to thrive. It's one thing if he was thriving because he was like, you know, let's say clearly money laundering and it was clearly he was breaking the law. But here's this thing where there really is, there was no regulation around crypto because regulation by definition lags innovation. And so, you know, they could at least tell themselves like, well, no, he's just a pioneer. He's not a, a criminal, um, you know, and ultimately their sort of love for their kid and their anxiety about their kid was so great 
that even if they did know what they didn't know and did know better, um, they chose to ignore it. Now, if you choose to ignore something that you should know better, there could be legal liability for it. And if, if they end up facing some sort of legal liability, so be it, right? Uh, you know, love for your kid is not an adequate defense. Um, look, we see this with Hunter Biden, too. I think it's very unlikely that Joe Biden was taking kickbacks or going to meetings of companies while he was the vice president of the United States and leaning on them to hire his kid. He also knew for 100% that his kid and his brother were using his name and selling his name in order to sort of create the perception, at least, of access and influence um, so that they can make money from lobbying. That's what lobbying is. He, of course, knew that that was the case, and yet his kid is this huge fuck-up who suffered a lot of tragedy early in life. His mother died when he was, what, four or something like that, and lost his brother as well, and has multiple addictions, and his father, who was incredibly worried about him, said, you know what? The kid's finally now doing okay. He seems happy. He's making a living, um, and he's not you know, explicitly breaking any laws in Biden's view. And keep in mind, Biden grew up in a world where soft corruption was far more tolerated and accepted than I think it is today. Um, and he's an old man, right? And so his, his cultural values were shaped a very long time ago. Um, and I think Biden effectively looked the other way, just like Sam Bankman-Fried's parents did. And, you know, it's, it's, as a parent, it's a tough call, right? Because I excuse behavior by my kids sometimes, and then I look at the big picture and I say, well, I care most about them being healthy and safe and happy. And this particular individual outcome or action may not be what I would want, but in furtherance of the big picture, um, I'm going to uh, live with it or or even, you know, justify it. And so I, I, I get it. I don't really know any parents who genuinely love their kids, which is most parents, that probably aren't guilty of this in some way. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. I also think that, you know, it sort of depends on the scale of it, right? You know, <laughs> like in both these cases... Uh, it it feels like the stakes are too high to just give them the sort of like, well, parents have a hard time seeing their kids for what they really are. You know, I think that's like a, it, it ultimately feels pretty, pretty, pretty thin. Yeah. Out, and, and also keep in mind, you know, and this is more broadly than sort of obviously Sam McAfee's an extreme example, but, you know, you're trying to see your kids also as human beings, right? And sometimes you recognize that, adherence to the norm or the status quo may be the best option for the biggest number of people, but that doesn't mean it's the right answer for your kid. I'll give you a really sort of minor, minor example. When Lyle was like seven, he dropped out of Hebrew school because uh, his classroom was really unruly. And it's sort of funny to think that there would be this chaos in, in the Hebrew yeah, school. Probably but, not the first time. But there was, and Lyle is a very, especially back then, very gentle, very sensitive kid, and he really fucking hated it. And we got him a tutor instead. And he sort of still got the same education and he did a wonderful job at his bar mitzvah. Um, but, you know, now look, is there an argument to say like, fuck that, tough it up, deal with the Hebrew school class? Yeah, but my view was, you know what? If it's, a, if it's an environment where he is anxious and miserable all the time, as long as, you know, we're able to teach him the basic precepts of the religion so he can choose what to do about it when he's an adult, so fucking what? Like, just give him give him the information. Look, I, I like that. Who cares example. about it's, the venue? It, it's 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 touching and relevant, but I also think, like the other the other side of it, right, is that the parent knows their kid, right? So you know, Sam Bankman Fried's parents know. Yeah, like, sure. Whoa, uh, that kid should not be, um, you know, managing a forty billion dollar business. We've never really seen him do anything like that before. Maybe he needs some safeguards and guardrails and. 
maybe we need to bring in some people, not like, oh, wait, why don't we just yeah, sign no, not having like put a our CFO name on some deed is, is, and, is crazy. <laughs> yes. And it's, I mean, the same with Hunter Biden. You're like, you're like, oh yeah, um, Hunter, you know, maybe, maybe we, you don't work in Washington. Like maybe we get you a nice job in Atlanta. But th you know? this is part <laughs> of the challenge of being a, like even a, a early stage tech investor and a, or, or just a tech investor and a board member and things like that, which is on one hand, um, of course you want to institute common sense and your, your job is to in some ways kind of keep things in, in check. On the other hand, you're betting on outliers or you're betting on these sort of changing social norms and these sort of incredibly rare human beings who are able to go ahead and, and make those changes happen. And so you also don't want to handcuff them and, and their ability to, to, to be truly great. And so I, I get that when it comes to, especially a, a white space, a, a crypto autonomous AI, whatever it is, that people sort of have overconfidence in the founder, like we saw with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos or Adam Newman and WeWork or whatever it is, because you're telling yourself, and that you're right to a certain extent, I want to enable greatness, not stifle it. Um, and so I, I, I get how that happens. Okay. Um, we're going to have to do another hard pivot here, although we might have to come back to this subject. This is, um, like oh, Maryland's kind of on the parenting thing. Okay, well, okay, so not like a, so a soft it's pivot. It's a soft pivot. Soft pivot, go. So basically, it's more of just that. So I took Abby and a couple of her friends to uh, a concert this weekend, and the, the concert was in Columbia, Maryland, at a place called the Mer Mer Meriwether Wait, is Pavilion. That the, is that the there? Reston? Uh, Columbia, Maryland's like that planned community, right? I don't know. Okay. Um but because we, we stayed in Hanover, Maryland, oh, okay. um, near, near about a half an hour outside of Baltimore and near B BWI Airport. Um, and it was, you know, acts like Lana Del Rey, Maggie Rogers, Boy Genius, Samia, um, Carly Rae Jespin, people like that. Sounds great. And um, but, you know, w we ended up eating all of our meals at the mall because there was a mall that I looked it up later. It was the Arundel Hills Mall in Hanover, Maryland. It's a little under 2 million square feet. So uh, the top 20 malls in the country, I looked up like on Wikipedia, the, the top 20 biggest malls in the, I think in the world, the country. And number 20 was right a little over 2 million square feet. So it's got to be probably in the top 30, let's call it. It was massive. It had a huge casino. It had just, it had a movie theater. It was crazy. It was an Egyptian themed movie theater with like, like uh, pillars and hieroglyphics. Like I've never seen a movie theater like this. It was nuts. Uh, it was interesting, but it was nuts. Um, and we go to lunch the first day, but we get to the hotel and say, Let, let's go have lunch before you head out to the, the concert, right? And um, we have lunch in the mall. And it's at like a sports bar, like a big restaurant with like, you know, dozens of TV, giant TVs. And a few things happen. So one is Abby. Sounds like a nice counterweight to the, uh, to the show they were saying. So Abby looks at me and says, I think these are different football. It's a Saturday. Different football games. So, oh, yeah, yeah, they are. And then Jeff, uh, another dad was there too, and I were, were actually watching the Colorado-USC game on, on one of the channels, at, on the TVs. And Abby said, what are they doing? She meaning the people in the crowd. I said, they're watching football. She said, why? And I said, this is what Saturday in America is like. Yeah, this is what I it said, is right here. In New York City, we don't really have college football. Yeah, but although like, a lot of people do watch it here. That's this, sure. this is the norm, right? And then when we left the restaurant, she said to me, so what's the theme of this mall? And I kind of was a little confused by the question. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, like Hudson Yards, which is the only, really the only mall we have in Manhattan, right? The theme is fancy, which is true. That seems like an accurate way to... And, and I said, I think the theme here is just whoever can pay the rent. Um, but it was funny that like she just had no 
experience with it, with any of this at all. And the notion that um, this is how most people live is, you know, they watch college football and they hang out at the mall and that's where they have their meals and do all of their shopping and everything else. Um, from a cultural standpoint, you just realize, holy shit, I'm raising a kid in Manhattan and a really privileged kid because then as we were going to the concert, um, she and her friends talking about like kind of what the average person there was going to be like. And I finally said, guys, you have to understand these most people who are going to this thing have probably been excited about this for a year and saving up for this for a year. And it's a really big deal to them. I said, you guys get to go to stuff like this whenever you want, wherever you want, right? Anywhere, sometimes in the country or the world, even you're the outlier and you have to appreciate um, how lucky you are to have this experience. And the, the guy who was driving us said, yeah, you know, my kids are 26 and 21 and I've never been to a, a concert. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm feeling somewhat smug because I'm like, oh, my kids are, you know, so ha ha ha. They're just so, so out of touch and living in this little bubble. Next morning I get up and, you know, pretty early and I want coffee. I look online and there's a Starbucks 0.2 miles away that's open. Okay, great. I'll go get a coffee. Um, but I'm on foot, right? Like, I, you know, I wouldn't want to deal with the car and all of that. And so on foot, though, required ultimately, just to show you that I'm ultimately no better uh, equipped for the real world than, than the kids. Um, <laughs> I ended up having to sprint across a eight-lane highway. It was three lanes away plus a turning lane. You didn't just run across the... There was a light, but there was no crosswalk or anything like that. Oh, God. Um, Because there was no crosswalk, because you're not supposed... I don't think the idea of anyone crossing that street by foot had ever occurred to them. This could have have been all over right there. And then I kind of look, and the entrance to the... This was a different mall, but the shopping mall area was like... Kind of felt like it it was, I don't know, five, 600 yards down. I'm like... I'm looking around. There's got to be another entrance. And finally, put, I scale a fence, right? So now I scrape my leg. I have a big scratch on my leg. <laughs> I go to Starbucks. I have my coffee. That part works out fine. Um, and then I'm like, well, there's, I'm sure there's some exit. This exit. is when you call Jeff and you have him come pick you up. Didn't find. So then eventually, there is no exit on that area. So I have to then jump the fence. So I get on top of it. It's like a brick fence. And then it wasn't far. It was four or five feet. Sprint back across the highway again. And then now I find myself right by our hotel, but blocked by a row of hedges. And I was like, well, at this point, fuck it. And so I just kind of walked through the head, kind of hedges, kept getting scratched and finally emerged in front of the hotel. But it was like, you know, here I was thinking that I was so much more in touch with our country and its culture. And like, I was just as much of a fucking idiot. That's awesome. Um, you already said your recommendation, so you just want to restate it very quickly. Well, I, I, I had three go. total. You have three? You, yeah, I know. You know, you're only allowed one. The, if you didn't the tell me that there was a rule, <laughs> I wouldn't feel the need to, to defy it. But once you set the rule, that was it. All right. So, yeah, movie done money, um, okay. really fun, a little bit like the big short, but but about kind of the, the GameStop uh, fiasco instead, but fun movie. Two, Zoretta um, Nathan Hill, have you read anything by him? Um, he wrote a great book a couple of years ago called The Knicks, uh, N-I-X, not our, not our Knicks. Um, and this new book is called Wellness. Uh, part of the reason I loved it was a lot of it took place in Wicker Park, Chicago in the 90s. I lived in Wicker Park in Chicago in the 90s, and I have a fondness for it. But I just thought it was a great book about marriage, relationships, identity, escaping your past, not being able to escape your past. Um, I thought it was really, really brilliant. Does and it have he, any rock and roll in it, Wicker Park in the 90s? Yeah, it does. Okay. The, the One of the main characters, photographer, and he's photographed. And they talk about all the bands that were passing through and playing at these small clubs um, at the time, like the Smashing Pumpkins playing at the Metro or whatever. Um, so, yes, it does. And the book's called Wellness, and, and the 
reviews, I think, have been off because not often that bad, but often that the book is a little bit of a send up of the wellness industry. But that's not really what it's about. Um, and I think that uh, if you read the reviews and you're like, oh, I'm not interested in a satire of the wellness industry, then you wouldn't read it. It's not really that at all. It's a wonderful book. And the third is a TV show. And the reason I'm going to plug it is I've never heard anyone talk about it before. And I wanted to get a little attention called Average Joe on Paramount. And it is about um, a family, African-American family in Pittsburgh, where the guy's dad, who's a senior citizen, dies. He goes to clean out his dad's office. His dad's a, a truck driver of some kind. Um, two Russian mobsters are in there. They say the dad has stolen $10 million in a Lamborghini. Um, you know, there ends up being a struggle for the gun. The That average Joe, Joe, the main character, manages to kill the two Russian mobsters, and then they're on the run, and they're trying to find the money, and the mob's involved, and the police is involved, and it's a great show, uh, and I kind of just feel like because I've never heard anyone talk about it, or I've never read anything about it, um, I want to let people know about it. It's called Average Joe on Paramount. Sounds good. Bradley, I'll see you next week. See ya. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.